Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name okay. is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Robin Howell. We're at Sokol Blosser Winery in Dayton. It's July 11th, 2023. And Robin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for asking. Uh, first question to get things started is why wine? It's mm, a good question. <laughs> um, I don't even, I don't have a real sharp answer for that. Um, I got interested with my father uh, who's really into wine and food, and that was his career. And uh, I started going to wine dinners with him, just something new to share together. Um, my mom wasn't as interested, so it was, uh, it was just sort of something fun to do after I finished my undergrad and I was living back with my parents because, you know, I was broke. <laughs> so, so living the 21-year-old dream. Um, and yeah, so I started going to these dinners and I just was intrigued at, um, the food and wine pairings and, uh, the, it would be a different winemaker or a different distributor at each, ta- uh, each wine dinner and just learning, you know, kind of about the world through wine. Um, and I really opened my eyes to the world in general. And I loved that culture part of it that wine brought to um, to understanding more and more about the world. And so that was, that was the beginning of my interest in wine. Um, and actually my dad suggested I study food science and I thought that was a ridiculous major. I didn't know what you could possibly do with that, um, but I was wrong. And um, I ended up studying genetics, but I knew a lot of people in the food science um, ma- uh, major, and they told me about a career fair uh, going on in their department. And I went over there and I met a few winemakers looking for, <clears throat> excuse me, for harvest interns. And one thing led to another, and I was working a harvest. And then it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to come back and pick that up there in a second, but let's talk about life before wine a little bit. You mentioned undergrad. Tell me about uh, where you're born and raised and kind of life before school. Yeah. So I was born in Michigan, raised in Michigan, um, right here in the mitten, very important. Uh, and I grew up right by Michigan State, so although we didn't have a farm, we were not an ag family. I was, you know, surrounded by farms in the ag industry, so I enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, and, and I was curious about ag in general, growing up in that environment. Um, and then, so growing up, I went up to the Upper Peninsula a lot and fell in love with that area of the state. And so when it came to um, undergrad, I went to school way far up north in Michigan, um, as far as you could go and still pay in-state tuition. <laughs> So, although I was interested in going to Michigan State, I actually had a um, friend of the family who was a professor there, and he recommended not going to such a big university for undergrad. So I chose a small university, and I studied biology. Um, And then 
So I was there for four years at Michigan Tech University. And then came back home and worked at Michigan State for a couple years, uh, studying in a lab that was studying plant genetics. And um, worked there for two years. And I was interested in genetics already. And then I liked the plant science side of it. So those, that work experience led me to my graduate studies, which was in plant genetics at um, Oregon State. My brother lived in Washington. I, was, I loved the West. Um, and so graduate school seemed like the opportunity to come out here. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd just be here for a couple years, doing my master's study, and then go back home to Michigan. But here I am uh, many years later. <laughs> with a career and a life and yeah. When you were heading into graduate school, what did you sort of think you'd be doing with your master's degree? I thought I'd be doing um, research science. I would be a lab rat. I pictured going back somewhere to research Triangle Park in Raleigh or outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, you know, uh, yeah, doing something with genetics, but in a research environment possibly at a university, but um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really see the world outside of um, a lab. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I liked it out there, but I didn't, I didn't know I was such a lab person and that was my comfort zone. Um, so that's where I gravitated towards. And that's actually how I got into the wine industry as I was working in a, a wine lab. So. Well, let's talk about that. And we'll actually, let's talk about Oregon first. So you mentioned kind of having an affinity for the West before coming here. Tell me about your first impressions of Oregon and of Oregon State. Um, I mean, I thought it was so cool that you could go to the coast one day and then go skiing the next day. <laughs> I just thought that was phenomenal. And in Oregon, you can do that in the summer because you can go up to Timberline and ski on the glacier. Um, so I just... And I loved all the green and the change in topography. Um, and I just, I loved that um, exposure of living in the valley. And then Oregon State, I, um, I loved living in Corvallis. I just thought it was a great college town. Um, gave me a chance to do um, club rowing which I enjoyed, and then, um, and you know, I, I had a really good advisor um, in terms of he brought in a lot of money, so there was a lot of opportunity for, for, um, for research there, and um, for whatever reason, there were a lot of South uh, South Americans in my department, and um, they were here to study and to explore everywhere in Oregon. Um, and they were all really interested in wine. And back then, you could go wine tasting for free or $5. So as a graduate student, you could afford to get out and go wine tasting on the weekends. So we did a lot of wine tasting, which I just also thought was fascinating that I could drive 30 minutes and be tasting wine in several different facilities. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was such a rich opportunity to, again, experience um, all these different 
it was just eye-opening, all these different wines that were available from Pinot Noir to Pinot Gris. Um, sparkling wasn't really a thing then, um, but Riesling and experience with uh, my friends from South America and just, again, that interlaying of um, world experiences. So, yeah, and I just fell in love with being out here and all the opportunity. So tell me about the, about these, you mentioned kind of the, the wine lab and, and the kind of the career fair is kind of the, the gateway. So which happened first? What was your kind of first foray into wine work? Wine work. So, yeah, so I went over to this career fair in the food science department. Actually, I started on in the um, viticulture and analogy club at Oregon State. And I went out to the, um, the vineyard that Oregon State owns and did pruning, and I just thought that was so cool. <laughs> that was so cool, and um, so then after that was the, the career fair. So I went over there thinking I would do something more on the viticulture side. Yeah, it was just more connected to the vineyard. That was just more tangible, I guess. The agriculture and all that. So I went over there, I was interested in viticulture, I talked to um, Lindsay Boudreaux, um, who was at King Estate. So I connected with her and really was trying to get a vineyard experience. Um, but she convinced me that there would be more opportunity for me in, um, in the analogy side of things. And they were looking for a harvest intern in the lab. And I mean, I had tons of lab skills. I knew how to run a, a pH and titrate. I could titrate anything. So, um, yeah, so that was my, my introduction. And she gave me the opportunity to, to work harvest at King Estate uh, back in 2005. So, so that was my introduction into the wine lab. And then I thought I would just do that for fun, for harvest, and then I'd get a real job back doing research, and here I am um, 20 plus years later, uh, or about 20 years later, still still looking for that real job. <laughs> <laughs> what was that first harvest like? What do you remember from it? It was overwhelming. I had never worked those sorts of hours. I had never... Um, I mean, on the one hand, it was fine because I didn't have any friends in Eugene. So it's, it's not like I had a life there. I was moving up from Corvallis. But yeah, I was overwhelmed by the, the hours and the intensity. But it was also ridiculously fun <laughs> because you're all in it together. So that does become your circle, your, your life, is all, all the other interns, the permanent employees. Um, that becomes your, your circle. And so it was exhausting and just so much fun. And it, yeah, it was just wild to see all this fruit come in and then at the end of the day have a beverage that you enjoy drinking. Um, yeah, and the smells, I mean, the smells were unreal. I'd never smelled fermentation before. Um, so then it was just sort of love after that. And um, my supervisor, Lindsay got promoted while I was there, and so there was a job opening in the lab. So again, I was like, well, I'll just uh, work in the lab for a year, and then I'll get a real job. Um, and then I was there for five years. 
So tell me about that. About uh, obviously we, we hear about the harvest the harvest rush and the kind of the harvest high a lot. Tell me about the other parts of the year and, and learning learning full time work at, at a winery. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like that was um, a benefit for me to almost start in a permanent position. I mean, I started as an intern and then it moved into a permanent position because there's so much that happens after fermentation um, to really bring the wine into the bottle. Um, so that was a great exposure um, because then after working there for five years, I did go and intern at a few places. So I kind of had a grasp of where, where the wine goes next, even though I wasn't seeing it to completion. Um, but it's, it's interesting because every year is different, but every year is the same. You have harvest, you have the harvest high, then the harvest low, <laughs> and then, um, then you move into blending, which is fascinating um, to see how different wines can be with just the smallest tweak. Like you think 2% is not that much, but you, depending on what the variables are, you can really change the dynamic of the wine. So learning the blending, and then, then the bottling, like the, the precision that comes with bottling. I mean, so much of harvest is not precise. And then you get to bottling and, you know, that's when things get really detailed and, um, you know, it's the last chance to touch the wine before it goes out to the consumer. So you're doing, yeah, you've got your harvest, your blending, and then your bottling, and then it starts all over again. So it's the same thing year after year, but every single year is different because of the, you know, the challenges of the environment, um, the growing season. Do you have a big harvest, a small harvest? Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, how did your role uh, evolve at, at King Estate while you were there? So I was always the lab manager when I was there, but I did... Um, uh, I was very fortunate because I, they sent me to a lot of classes. Um, at that time, it was a lot of classes at UC Davis, um, their um, community, not community ed, but um, extension, extension extension classes. Um, so that was, that was pretty special to be able to do that. Uh, every single seminar that was going on in the Valley, um, especially at Chemeketa, I got to go to. Um, before Linfield was really had a wine program, um, but I would have been sent to those had that been a different time. Um, so that was a lot of my exposure, and I went to California a handful of times just to tour other labs and learn about their equipment, um, learn how their lab managers or their analogists fold into their winemaking program, and uh, because I didn't have an analogy degree. Um, it was, it was, I was developing sort of my own position there. I mean, overseeing the lab, but then how do I learn to be a winemaker at the same time? Whereas previous um, um, lab managers there were analogists already. So I had to learn that science. Um, but it just, um, yeah, just every, every vintage obviously learning and then having the opportunity to get out and go to these classes and meet people and just make that contact um, out was how I evolved in my position there. Um, and I took on more packaging, procurement responsibilities as I was there. Um, 
oversaw a lot of the cork purchasing. I had the opportunity to go to Portugal when I was there. Um, so all those just developed my, my curiosity, you know, developed my palate, developed my um, analogy understanding. Um, and, and just meeting people, because especially down in Eugene, you're pretty isolated in the wine industry. So getting out and meeting more people, because you, you can't really make wine, I don't think, in a silo. Like you need to have other people. You need to have other people to bounce ideas off of, or when you're having a struggle, you know, how do, how do I remedy this issue? Um, so that was, I felt very lucky that I got to have that opportunity. But then it felt very isolated after five years, so I um, left. I needed to explore other things, other opportunities. So. Well, before we get to that, I have one, one last question. Uh, as one you're last? There, well, one last about that. <laughs> uh, as you're there, tell me about sort of what's the role of the enologist in the finished product? What, what do you feel like are the contributions of, of that lab manager enologist role to, towards the finished wine? I would say the, the deep detail person. Like the winemaker paints the broad strokes and gives the imagination to the wine. Um, and then the enologist is the technical person. They're making sure the chemistry is tight um, or that the winemaker is aware of the chemistry and can make a decision if they want to tighten things up. You know, what kind of sulfur level do they want going into the bottle? And how does that relate to when it's going to go out into the market or how it's going to age or the style of the wine? Um, yeah, so I think that the, the winemaker is the broad brush strokes and the analogist outlines everything, you know, like gets everything to a fine point. So I find that that's very complimentary. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it works for my brain because I'm, I get, sometimes I get a little bogged down in the details. Um, and that is something I'm definitely working on is stepping out and looking at the bigger picture mm -hmm. because that's, that is my training as uh, I'm a lab person, a scientist, and then stepping out into the, the big picture. So you, five years there, you feel like it's time to kind of take the next step. So at that point, were you looking for a specific role or a specific part of the industry, or were you just sort of looking? So at that point, I mean, I'd only worked in the lab. I could write a work order, but I couldn't execute a work order mm -hmm. because I didn't have all the, the pump skills or, you know, dragging hoses. So that seemed wrong to be able to tell people what to do, but not be able to do it myself. I can tell you why you're doing it, but I can't tell you how to do it. Um, so the next opportunity I took was to um, uh, go, I wanted to go to a big winery in New Zealand um, and drag a hose, hook up a pump. I wanted to follow the work orders mm -hmm. so that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> Not just why, but how to physically make things happen. Um, so that's what I was looking for was I wanted to be in the cellar. I did not want another lab job. Um, fortunately, the position I ended up with um, was at a big facility in Marlboro, tons of Sauve Blanc. But I had, um, it did end up being a bit of a combination with the lab. I was doing fermentation checks. So, so 
I was still really connected with the winemaking and there were several different winemakers there. So that was pretty special to be able to um, pull the samples, taste with the winemakers. I didn't get to taste everything, but I would taste a lot of stuff with the winemakers um, and get their opinions. There were a lot of people making their own production there, small production. So you got a variety of um, opinions mm -hmm. on style. Um, so I would do fermentation checks in the morning and then in the afternoon I would do rackings or inoculations. So, and these are on huge tanks. So you're doing, you're using pumps, you're using hoses to do these inoculations. Um, and it was just, I mean, that was a riot. I, I would tell anybody to have that experience. Um, even if they ultimately want to work in a small place, I mean, you meet so many people because there's people from all over the world coming there. Um, so you just, you meet such a diversity of people that just increases your opportunities out in the industry, not only your knowledge, but your connections. And um, it was just really fun. <laughs> what did you think about that part of the work, about dragging hoses and, 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 and hooking, hooking things up? I really loved it. It was very satisfying. Um, I mean, there's something about coming home from work and being physically exhausted, which is, you know, has its own fulfillment. Um, and I just felt, um, I don't know if smarter is the right word, but it just, I felt more well-rounded by having that experience and not just writing work orders and telling other people what to do. So, no, I loved it. I loved being able to hook up the hoses and run the pumps and... Um, actually, I had another winemaker later who told me when I was talking to him about, you know, what, what are the next steps do you think I need to advance my career? And he said, you need to uh, understand how equipment works, mechanical. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. I just need to work on my palate. But he was 100% right, like, because winemaking is about a palate, but it is also about um, logistics and equipment to make the process happen. So. And was there a reason you chose New Zealand specifically? Um, yes, because I was old. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they have the visa program for people under 30 to go, and it's very easy in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, but in New Zealand, it was easier to get um, um, in a, um, I can't even, I don't, a special visa mm -hmm. because they, it's such a small country and there's more demand for employment. And because I had the five years of experience um, running a, a lab in a winery, they could, that made me more, it validated my experience um, in terms of getting, getting the visa. So, um, yeah, so it just made it easier to get a visa. Australia's, you know, it's, it's so big and they have so many employees or potential employees, so I just couldn't. So yeah, it was logistics. <laughs> I mean, I was curious to go to New Zealand. I mean, that's fantastic. Um, and I'm really glad I ended up there. But that is, that is why. Because I, I came to the industry and um, that side of things, the traveling, a little bit later. So as you're wrapping up your time in New Zealand, what were you sort of thinking about for next step? Um, I came back to Oregon. Um, I was, was not done traveling. 
Um, but coming back to Oregon uh, seemed the most intriguing at the time to work someplace else in Oregon. And I know it was just because it was familiar. You know, I'd taken a big step by going to New Zealand alone and exploring that, but I wanted to come back and see friends and, um, yeah, be back in Oregon. And so that I came back here, worked a harvest, um, actually at Domain Serene up the hill and, uh, met some really fantastic people working there. Um, folks I'm still friends with today. Um, but yeah, that was just, uh, I guess a step one step, but I knew I wanted to keep traveling and keep having other experiences. Um, I did come back knowing I didn't want to work in a huge facility again, that that was my experience and um, it was totally worth it. Um, I think it's an important experience, but I wanted to go back to smaller production and Pinot Noir focused. Um, that was the other reason I came back to Oregon is because I was really wanted to stay Pinot Noir focused. Um, so then I came back here, worked harvest. Um, I worked night shift, which was an experience. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very strange to come home in the morning and sit at the uh, table with your roommates and they're eating cereal to get ready to go to work and you're having your, your after work beer <laughs> at 8 a.m. because that's normal. <laughs> The rules are a little different during harvest. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was that experience. And then, um, then I went back to New Zealand. So this time I went to Central Otago. So um, continue on the Pinot Noir track. And Central Otago is pretty special because there's a lot of um, uh, folks there that have worked in Oregon. So they have a big connection with Oregon and the Willamette Valley. And actually the winemaker I ended up working for, he had worked at Elk Cove for I think five years as an assistant winemaker. So, um, so he knew Oregon very well. And um, it was a smaller, smaller facility. I can't remember how many tons we brought in, but it was probably like 200, 200 tons or something like that. So um, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was fun because there was, um, it was a pretty easy harvest. <laughs> After working at King Estate, which was pretty good size then, and it's only gotten bigger in Marlborough, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty cruisy to go for 200 tons. Yeah, it was nice. I mean, we ate dinner at home and uh, yeah. You know, banker hours started at nine. It was, it was a good life. <laughs> Had plenty of time to hike around and taste and um, yeah, travel and yeah, it was it was it was a good time. Yeah, they all should be so easy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that was the first and last, <laughs> except for maybe 2016 here. That 2016 was pretty cruisy. <laughs> but yeah, I finished that and um, I came, no, I traveled to France after that. I went over to France um, just for fun and spent a lot of time in the Rhone Valley exploring. And then I, I started to get interested in sparkling wine um, when I was in central Otago. I mean, I've always enjoyed 
sparkling, but I didn't, I didn't really develop a passion for it um, until working at the facility in central Otago. They were making a small amount. I don't even remember the case production, but um, I got to participate in the dosage trials and that, that was mind blowing to me. So that really stemmed my interest in, in sparkling wine. Um, and so I was in touch with um, one of the winemakers I worked with in, at King Estate, who also made sparkling wine, his own sparkling wine. Um, and he had a connection in the south of France um, that he connected me with and because um, they make sparkling wine down there. And uh, there's some debate, passionate debate, if sparkling wine came from down there or from Dom Perignon and Champagne. Um, but anyways, long history of making um, sparkling wine. So I connected with um, the winemaker down there and I came back to the US for the summer and then went back to the south of France for one more harvest. And uh, I mean, I think I, I don't know because I haven't worked in Champagne, but I think I got probably a, a pretty rich experience working down there um, because the winemaker was incredibly open with information. Um, so it was very much an educational experience. And actually just before that, when I f was finishing my harvest in New Zealand the second time, I was like, maybe I was on the fence if this was really the career path I wanted to go on. Um, Cause I think I was feeling a little stagnant, even though I was having these, you know, increasing experiences. I think I was, yeah, it was a lull mm -hmm. in my, in my life and my career thought. Um, and then I went to the south of France and just had such an enriching experience. Um, I mean, just tasted so many wines. Um, he made a huge diversity of wines because uh, in the south they grow, they grow so much. I mean, from sparkling base, um, he mostly made um, uh, brute uh, Pinot and Chardonnay base. Um, but there were uh, other odd, or to us, odd varieties that they're growing down there to make sparkling. Uh, and so I got exposure to those. I mean, we made Merlot, Malbec, Cab Sauv, Pinot Noir, um, Syrah, Chardonnay. We made everything under the sun. Um, so, and it was just basically me and the winemaker. So I really, I did everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a very physically demanding harvest. I mean, occasionally he would have some of the vineyard guys come in to do, um, um, to rack barrels and, cause we, we had it on what's called stillage. So it wasn't forklifting, it was physically throwing the barrels up. So the vineyard guys would come in and do that for me. But I would fill the press myself, run the press myself, um, the winemaker would give me a list of things to do and then he'd go into town and work in the office and come back in the afternoon and we'd taste things. And um, so it was very hands-on. I was very independent and that, that is what sealed, sealed it for me that this was actually the career path I wanted to go down. And to make sparkling was, um, was the cherry on the top mm -hmm. for me. 
So at that point you had a lot of experiences, a lot, a lot of different places, a lot of different sizes and styles. And had you started to kind of hone in on your sort of particular style or your sort of particular philosophy towards, towards working in, in the winery? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I wouldn't say, no, I wouldn't say. I say I really developed that when I started working at Sokol Blosser. Um, and I think that's really because at this point, I'm tied with the vineyard. Um, I have, you know, I have a relationship now with all the blocks that that we're processing, whereas before it was really just grapes coming in. I didn't have a necessary necessarily a tie to the to the site. So I guess I would say that was my where I started to develop the. Um, what was important to me, which was a tie to the site. So in that regard, yes, I knew I wanted a connection with the site. I didn't want to work at a huge bulk facility just pushing through wine, which has its value, of course, but that's that wasn't. I wanted to make site-specific mm -hmm. wines. Um, so that, I guess that style, be it whatever the site gives you, is ultimately the style. I knew I wanted to work with Pinot Noir and not the big reds because I just I I'm a white wine drinker and Pinot Noir like I like the delicacy the finesse of um, of white wines and Pinot Noir um, so that was a takeaway from my experience in France was I wasn't going to work with Merlot and Cab Sauv. not for me mm -hmm. I just had a palate more for the delicacies so after that kind of kind of the epiphany or the kind of like you said the kind of seals that this is this is what you want to do um you have an idea of where, where you want to be and kind of what you want to do so how did you go about finding sort of the next step for yourself i mean i don't want to say it was luck but um it was definitely um the timing was fortuitous because i came back to oregon and I, you know, I was looking for jobs, but nothing was really coming up that piqued my interest. Um, I was starting to apply for harvest jobs just because I needed to be doing something. Um, so looking at going back to New Zealand again. Uh, and the woman who hired me, Lindsay, at, at um, King Estate, who brought me into this industry, really, she um, transitioned out of winemaking and was working as uh, a sales rep for a glass supplier. And that glass supplier serviced, or, or, um, serviced Sokol Blosser. And she ran into Alex Sokol Blosser at the airport. And he told her that they were um, creating this, a new position here, an analogous position. Um, Russ Rosner was getting ready to retire. Alex Sokoblaster was going to become the winemaker, but he needed more um, chemistry help um, because he also has other obligations for the business. And so he, he was talking to Lindsay at the airport um, in Eugene. I don't really know why he was in Eugene, but um, and Lindsay's like, actually, I think I do know because I had stayed in contact with her over the years. Um, I think I do know somebody who'd be looking for the job who's looking for a job and would be perfect for this position. So um, she connected me with the position that was going to be opened here. And 
I think just, you know, help bring my resume to the top of the pile because I assume they got a lot of resumes. So, yeah, she, uh, she's been very influential in my career. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's how I ended up here. And I, I came and met with Russ and Alex and it just, it felt right because it was a smaller facility. Um, and, but not teeny tiny, like I wouldn't be working by myself like I was in France. It was a little too small. It was a great experience, fantastic experience, obviously career shaping. But um, I didn't really want to be making wine all by myself. Um, and I didn't want to um, go back to a huge facility either. So it was kind of middle of the road, um, especially for Oregon, in size and production volume and um, so it just felt right and I liked I liked working for a family um, an established family and uh, I really connected with Russ he is very particular very detailed and so am I <laughs> so we we clicked and um, yeah I actually came here for uh, just to meet just a casual talk which of course is an interview, even if it's not an official interview. <laughs> and um, Russ and Alex and I, we just hit it off and then just cascaded from there. And yeah, now I'm here for 11 years. So yeah, so I started as the enologist here. So you mentioned there was kind of a role being created. Uh, tell me about sort of finding, finding your way into that role and then um, and, and starting to kind of understand the place now that you were at a place that had its own vineyard? Yeah. So it was um, interesting because I, I came in, yeah, it was a new role. Russ was the scientist. Um, Russ managed all of that side of things. And, um, but they needed somebody who was savvy with Excel, who um, knew, understood the chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, and they wanted to do more chemistry in-house. So I, I brought that to the table. So I, I brought in more, um, doing more lab work in-house. Um, so that was pretty fun to be able to create a lab. I'd never done that before. Um, I mean, it's not a huge lab. Um, it's not like ETS or coronology, but um, it did bring in a lot of that skill set. So that was really fun because I'm still developing my palette, I'm still getting to know the vineyard site, but I'm, um, I'm getting to you know, bring in my other skills, my other offerings to the, to the company. And so that was kind of how I segued in, was just through the, through the lab and that, that offering to the company. And I overlapped for one year with Russ. So he really spent a lot of time teaching me the database programs, um, managing packaging procurement. I learned a lot about labels, um, QCing labels. I mean, there's a whole side of winemaking that nobody talks about, <laughs> which is the packaging, because it's not very sexy, but it's so important. Um, so I learned that skill, and um, although sometimes I complain about it, I actually also really enjoy going through the labels and getting the label um, order in, and. Um, all that logistical movement of packaging procurement. So I learned that side of the business, which was a huge thing for me, um, and took that off of Russ's plate as he was retiring and um, 
not something that Alex had the bandwidth to take on. Um, so that was my way to sort of sort of carve out a niche here at Sokol Blosser. Um, and then obviously I sat in on the tastings. So just, you know, for a while it was just observing what other people are tasting, how they're tasting, um, what does each block give, what are people's perceptions of what each block gives. So a lot of it was just observation for a year because uh, that was my approach. And, um, um, and then getting out into the vineyard uh, that summer. I mean, I was here, I started in July, so I was really thrown into the growing season. Um, and so I just spent a lot of time with Alex going out into the vineyard and learning each block and studying the map. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that was how I mm -hmm. got into, uh, segued into Sokol Blosser. And then one thing led to another, and then I was assistant winemaker, um, and then um, associate winemaker, and now, now I'm today the winemaker. So it's been an adventure. <laughs> well, I want to talk about those steps in a second, but I'm, I'm curious about something. First, you, you've mentioned throughout kind of developing your palate. And so I'm curious about as you developed a palate, has it, have you had to sort of redevelop it with each step? I mean, by the time you got to Sokol Blosser, obviously you tasted a lot of wine, you've had a lot of wine. What, what did you have, what did you still have to learn uh, on your palate when you got here? I think the biggest thing um, learning here was structure. Learning acid and structure. Um, I think the, the easiest things to begin with are, you know, identifying fruit components in a wine. Um, and I had taken some classes on, you know, off aromas and developed that. So I had those pretty tidied, but I learning the structure of wine mm -hmm. um, and the implications of your decisions during fermentation and how they impact structure. And then your oak. Um, that was another big thing when I came here. I didn't have a lot of knowledge on barrels and barrel influence on, on, the, on the wines. Um, I mean, certainly I, I knew the barrels influenced it, but I didn't get down to the nitty gritty of each cooper and each toasting and how they impact um, the, the wine and how um, Pinot Noir paired with one cooper might not match, that cooper might not match the Pinot Noir grown from a different vineyard section. Um, so getting to know how each vineyard section in, um, related to the oak profile. So that was, yeah, so learning oak and learning structure were the big things that I had to, had to take on this uh, starting at Sokol Blosser. We did a lot of extended maceration when I first started here, so like 30 plus days on the skins um, after fermentation was complete. So tasting through that, which is a very scary process because the wine is good when it finishes, and then it sits there on the skins and it gets bitter and jagged and um, unbalanced. And then literally in a day, you taste it and the wine completely changes. So getting comfortable with that. <laughs> that the wine will recover, the wine will bounce back and learning that patience. Um, yeah. You mentioned kind of the year of observation of other other people's perspectives on sort of the blocks here and on, on their characteristics. Tell me about then sort of charting your own 
path and learning the vineyard from your perspective? Um, a lot of that for me started when I um, was tasting the juice. Mm -hmm. So once after a year and tasting the finished wine and then, um, then really being part of the, the berry sampling and um, tasting that juice and tasting it at the beginning of fermentation, um, that gave me even more of a connection with each block. And then at that point, knowing the blocks a little bit better, knowing how the soil changes on our hillside and um, seeing how that can impact the juice, impact the fermentation, um, impact the finished product, uh, that just gave me more uh, confidence in understanding what people were saying, what the team was already saying about the wines, instead of just taking it at, at face value. I could see how that blue fruit came into the wine. How those, I mean, the Jory soil is known for red fruit, but there are different red fruits throughout our vineyard. Um, so I would say that next year of knowing the vineyard a lot better. Tell me what kind of, what, where the Soko Blosser was as a brand as, as you were coming into it and kind of what the expectations were for, for its future, for what, what role you were going to play in it. Um, so one of the big things was that um, Alex and Allison really wanted a sparkling program. Um, and um, Russ was not interested in, in doing that, which is totally understandable. It's... I mean, making sparkling wine is ridiculous. <laughs> it's definitely a passion project. So, um, so that was a big part of why I think I was hired. Because I had the interest. I had um, some pretty decent knowledge on sparkling production. So um, I had that role. Yeah, so we were um, starting to develop more of an entry level. We had, I mean, we have beautiful single blocks out there, um, which is, um, you know, that's just about continuing that program because the, it, they're the opportunity for the vineyard to speak for itself. Um, so when I came on, we were developing more um, entry-level Pinot Noirs or, um, yeah, entry-level. Mm -hmm. But we wanted it to be, we wanted them to be Pinot Noir. We wanted them to say Willamette Valley. Um, I mean, for the fruit to, for the wine to speak Willamette Valley. Um, so developing those programs is, um, I would say more, not why I was brought in, but those were the directions at that time, you know, to keep continuing forward on, you know, coveting these single block vineyard sites and um, continuing those programs, but then also developing more diversity in our portfolio in terms of price points. Um, and, I would actually say that making entry-level Pinot Noir is far and away more challenging. <laughs> and I, I feel like between that and making sparkling, I've become a stronger winemaker because you, um, you might be having minimal touch on the wines that are, that are um, for these elevated programs, but um, things are happening with that wine and you don't necessarily, you accept it, but you don't necessarily understand why it's happening until you are working with um, Pinot Noir that's going into an entry-level program. So, because there's a little more tweak, a little more winemaking intensive. Um, 
And same with sparkling, also very winemaking intensive. And every flaw is amplified. Um, I would say both with sparkling and entry level. So learning how to avoid those flaws um, or remedy situations that have happened um, have made me a stronger winemaker. And I feel like that then also impacts these uh, higher, higher tier programs as well. It's a cascading, um, cascading results. For sort of entry level Pinot specifically, obviously we, this is a, kind of a common refrain for people who want to make that kind of the, the, the first Pinot Noir you're ever going to drink kind of wine. Um, tell me about the specific challenges and about trying to make that bottle of wine that's going to go out into the world and represent the wine of Valley. Yeah. So, I mean, you're limited by price point. So you can't buy the most expensive Pinot Noir. Um, you have to strike a balance between um, Valley Floor Pinot Noir, which is totally fine. It just doesn't have that same layer and depth um, complexity that you can get from, you know, hillside jory soil Pinot. So you take this, um, you know, less complex Pinot Noir, a little more simple, and what, what activities can you do during fermentation to pull out the best qualities you have in it? And then you get to know that site and what qualities that site can bring in. And then you have another site also on the valley floor, um, which is slightly different, but what, um, or slightly different clones, slightly different soil, um, could be, you know, a little bit sloped. What qualities does that fruit have and how do you, you know, are you doing pump overs? Are you doing punch downs? Is it a yeast you choose to work with? Is it an enzyme you use for extraction? Um, and how does that, what can you do with that fruit to bring out those qualities? And then you get to your blending. So you have example A and example B, and then they complement each other and they fill in the holes that each of them lack. Um, so that would be, that's, and then you want it to be Willamette Valley. You want it to have that bright red fruit. Um, you don't want it, because commonly Willamette Valley is a little more delicate. It's not heavy and juicy. It's, um, or at least, you know, right now, mm -hmm. um, things will evolve over time, but um, it's just a delicate Pinot Noir. You don't want it to be unctuous. You don't want it to be high alcohol. You don't want it to be, you want, sweet fruit, but not jammy fruit, because I think that's the Willamette Valley. So, um, and how do you do that without adding a bunch of sugar and um, blending in other varieties? How do you do that with just Pinot Noir? Um, that's been our, our challenge and our um, learning experience. Tell me about the, the transitions for you from analogist to assistant winemaker to associate winemaker. Um, before we get to the sort of the last step there, um, what were the biggest sort of learning curves or, or new responsibilities with the kind of the, it, it, as you were advancing up the ladder? Um, so for me here, the, the transition from analogist to assistant winemaker was, um, I would say a little more gentle, like I was already doing a lot of those responsibilities. Um, and it was just um, proving myself, proving that I did have a palette, that um, I thought I could think beyond just the minute details of the chemistry. 
um, that I could think about the logistics. So that to me was a pretty, pretty gentle transition. Um, and then developing into associate winemaker was taking ownership and responsibility for things, um, which I was doing before, but even more so, like you're making decisions and you feel confident with those decisions. And yeah, I'm, I'm talking to Alex and I'm getting final approval from him, but I'm initiating these ideas because he's, you know, he's pulled in a million directions. So somebody needs to be looking at the wine all the time. And that was my role was to look at the wine all the time. So, um, you know, suggesting trials that we could do, suggesting blends to put together. That was a big part actually in transitioning from assistant winemaker to associate winemaker was leading the blend trials. Um, I would say that was the biggest transition, was leading the blend trials. Um, and also participating in um, the barrel decisions. I was no longer just saying these are the barrels and we're gonna put wine in them. And I'm told what, what wine to put in each barrel. I was saying which wine I thought, which sections paired best with which coopers and really part of those discussions. So I would say taking more ownership in the wine, uh, wine making decisions mm -hmm. was the biggest transition um, in that step. Um, in learning more about the logistics of the facility, I before then was, you know, just sort of rolled with the punches, but then I was learning how to use the cross flow and um, learning not just how to use it, but how to fix it. <laughs> and how to fix the cooling system when that would go down. So learning those um, not very dreamy parts of winemaking, but incredibly essential um, parts. And then hiring the harvest interns. <laughs> Another important part of uh, making sure winemaking happens during harvest. With a brand like Zogelblosser that obviously is, is established and kind of has, has a reputation, has a style of its own, how do you fit your sort of your style into that and, and, and bring your personality to the wines? Um, I'd say one big shift that has happened over the years is that I definitely like the bright fruit. And so that's been a stylistic change in the Pinot Noir um, that's come since, uh, being part of the team. And then I'd say the other, other aspects that I've brought in are more introduction of different varieties. So I've been very, um, impactful in the sparkling program. Um, actually with Alex went on a trip to Champagne last year to really go to the motherland and really learn how to make sparkling. And so we've made some shifts since that experience. Um, but I've really driven the, the sparkling program um, since its inception. Uh, I mean, I was given the opportunity to, and that was my interest. So influence that in terms of making, you know, making it more in the brute, brute range. Um, definitely don't want it to be sweet, um, but want that fresh fruit character coming through. Um, and then pushing to do some extended tirage um, 
or adding that program to, to the sparkling. I was a big proponent for that. And we released our first um, eight-year entourage wine um, last year. I think it was last year. And it, it blew people's minds. So, um, so that was a nice um, foundation for wanting to push the program in general for longer time entourage. Um, the board really enjoys the wine. So um, that being able to have a small quantity that we had an extended tirage and being able to present that to the board and say, the, you can taste the difference. This is why we need to, to invest money in this way. Um, so having multiple tiers of programs in terms of length of entourage. Um, and then I, after working in New Zealand, I really loved Sauve Blanc. I mean, the fermentation aromatics from Sauve Blanc are fantastic. Um, and so um, I brought that variety. Um, it was in 2019, we finally got access to really good Sauve Blanc in the Valley. So brought that program to Sokol Blosser. Um, that's probably the biggest, those are probably the biggest additions that I've made. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I encourage more and more white wine varieties to be produced. I just really enjoy producing white wine. Um, it's very challenging, I think, because there's no, yeah. I like the challenge of not having much to hide behind in terms of flaws. So it works with my science brain of, you know, the details being really critical. Um, yeah. So tell me about the, about the 2020 harvest. Uh, obviously a difficult year and every, and for everyone, and a difficult year for wine especially. Um, tell me about the challenges of that harvest specifically and, and sort of what kind of solutions you had to come up with on the fly. Oh, yeah. That was... That was an experience. That was an emotional harvest. <laughs> I mean, um, we had an amazing uh, staff for that harvest, which made made things more tolerable. Um, but uh, first, it was scary, and then um, I'll be honest that a lot of um, the focus on what to do was stemmed by Alex. Like my, my focus just became the logistics of bringing in the fruit, um, getting fermentation started right away. And Alex spent countless hours on the phone with um, people in Southern Oregon and then everyone in the Valley. Like, I mean, as awful as the whole experience was, like it just showed how powerful the winemaking um, community is here in the Valley. Like, there was no shame. Everyone was sharing everything. Everyone was sharing every technique they could come up with, all these numbers we were getting that we had no idea what to do with. Um, we were all just sharing everything. So yeah, I mean, I don't need to experience that again, but it was, it was, a, it was an interesting um, and powerful reminder of the, the community that we're in, that we're making wine in, and how lucky we are, I think. Um, but a lot of decisions that were made on the fly were we chose, we felt we had to produce. Um, we didn't have crop insurance, um, so we, we felt like we needed to produce. So what are we gonna do? So we decided to, instead of doing really light wines off the skins, we went super heavy. 
like let's go as heavy as we can so that there's more space to strip strip things out, be it with charcoal or um, all the techniques that were out there. Um, so that was our approach. And we tried, um, we didn't actually try RO ourselves. We did some trials. Uh, we tasted other people's trials in RO. We worked with the um, this magical resin product that was coming out of a company in California. Um, so we tried that and we thought that it did something to the wine. It made it palatable, um, palatable, uh, palatable enough to be blenders. Um, we tried charcoal. Um, we tried, um, we, we definitely did no extended maceration that year. It was off the skins as soon as possible. Um, there was no cold soaks. Again, we inoculated as soon as that fruit came in, it was inoculated. We pushed it through fermentation in as tight a turnaround as we could. Um, and we did the best we could with the limited knowledge that was out there. We did the micro ferments and, you know, tasted for, for smoke impact there. Um, but everything was smoke impacted, different levels, but everything was smoke impacted. Uh, we tried doing, yeah, where we would sanye some and ferment that, you know, a light colored pinot and then super dark colored pinot, super heavy tannic because of all the skins. Yeah, we tried everything. But at the end of the day, I think our greatest success would be was to make uh, as dense of wine as we could, um, ferment it warm, use enzymes. Um, and no, we did not use enzymes. We decided not to use enzymes because of the smoke. Um, and then work with the resin and try to strip away as much as we could. We also used some oak adjuncts at the end um, to try to mask it a little bit kind of amplify some cherry characters, cherry and vanilla characters. Um, and actually, I think the one of the biggest challenges out in the marketplace with that wine is that um, the media trashed it. Um, so there was no real chance to prove yourself because people already had a preconceived notion on what it was. Um, but we actually got some really good scores from <laughs> from the spectator and the enthusiast on our Evolution Pinot Noir and our Redland Pinot Noir and our Dundee Hills. So we got some 90s, uh, 90 plus scores on those wines, um, which is wild, but they were still, and they still are incredibly difficult to sell because um, there is, people, people are judging the wines before they've even put them in their mouth. So, um, I mean, are those wines the best we've ever made? Certainly not. <laughs> but um, I think we ended up with some, some good, some decent wines, given the challenge of the vintage. Um, I'm sure we're going to have that sort of incident again sometime. Hopefully it's not the entire vintage. I think that was a huge, huge hurdle that we had. Is it was really the entire vintage it was smoke affected. So, um, but there's, a, there's some incredible research that's being done at 
um, with the support from Jackson family. Uh, so hopefully we're better equipped. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the new lab opening at Oregon State. Um, hopefully between all this research and technology coming forward, we'll be better equipped for when this happens again. So you mentioned that you're now the, the, wine, the, the winemaker here at Wasser. Crazy. Tell me about how that came to be and about <laughs> stepping into that role. Um, well, it was definitely not, um, uh, it was a surprise to me. Not that they thought I could, it wasn't a surprise to me that they thought I could do it, but I worked with Alex Sogoblatzer, who is about my age and loves winemaking. So um, I didn't really think that title was going to come to me here. Um, and I didn't have an issue with that because I got, you know, tons of support, appreciation, um, I had all the all the accolades I needed to feel like I was appreciated here, so I didn't need that title, um, and I was very happy working here. So I didn't I didn't need to go somewhere else so that I could have that title. Um, but you know, family changes happened, and Alex became president of the entire company, and you can't be president of a company this size and be the winemaker. So it opened up this opportunity for me. And of course I had to say yes. I mean, they asked me um, and I had to do a tasting with the board, but I mean, the only, the only option was yes for me. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was a surprise. I was very surprised, very excited, very honored. Um, I'm the fifth winemaker here, which is incredible. Um, and Actually, Alex is the only family member who's ever been a winemaker here. So, but yeah, I'm the fifth, first female winemaker um, for Sokol Blosser. And I had to do a tasting with the board, which I was terrified to do, even though I know these people um, and they're not scary people, but it's, it still feels different when they have the board before them. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, so much so, I guess we're gonna do it every year now. <laughs> Uh, it was it was really fun to be able to talk about the wines um, with them and you know how I wanted to carry them forward and things I wanted to change, which isn't really anything. I mean, I've been part of the evolution of these wines, you know, certainly in the last five six years. So I feel like my fingerprint has already has already been placed on these wines. Um, but it's been it's been a challenge um, stepping into the role because there's just a lot of um, oversight that I didn't have to do before. Um, you know, managing all the acquisition of, of new equipment, um, presenting to the board uh, justification for new equipment, um, you know, really monitoring the budget. Like a lot of these, these you know, uh, managerial um, office type responsibilities that now I have and now the buck stops with me when something's flawed with the wine when the sales team is unhappy with something with the wine that stops with me and that's you know that's something I'm still wrapping my my brain around um, I mean fortunately we have a very supportive team and I have a very supportive um, boss so I feel like I couldn't be set up for success any better than I am right now um, and the other big change is letting things go. Like I have, you know, I worked hard to hire a really good team to um, 
to make the wine with me and support me. Um, and um, I feel really solid on the team we have in place right now. And now it's just me letting things go, which, which I'm excited to do because I have people who I think are, who are eager and I think are capable of doing it. So it's, you know, it's always hard to let go of things that become yours. Um, but it's an important part of, uh, important part of the change. And it's an important part of other people's career development is that they have the opportunities that I had. So, um, being a manager, I was a manager before, but now I'm the manager of the programs and the people, um, which, you know, it's, I think management is the greatest highs and the greatest lows <laughs> of a job. Um, but that's, it's been very rewarding. Um, I'm definitely nervous going into this harvest. Uh, I'm not going to be there by myself. Alex is still the viticulturist, so, you know, he's still part of the production. Um, but I'll be making the pick decisions and doing the pick calendar and, you know, working with all that scheduling. It's just a lot more logistics. <laughs> it's not the, just the logistics in the winery, it's the logistics in the vineyard. So managing that, it'll be a big transition. Um, I'm excited though. I'm excited to, you know, to take on these new challenges. It's definitely, I didn't feel like I was stagnant before, but now that I have these new opportunities, I'm like, oh, I think I was, I was kind of stagnant. Like I was happy, but um, it's been, you know, fun, frustrating. Um, overwhelming and exciting to to come into this role and especially here at Sokol Blosser I just it just didn't occur to me that I would have this position here um, so it was it was a it was a um, mind shift but um, I feel honored to have it and to have it here at Sokol Blosser so you come in, come in your first harvest in that role. Tell me about, you know, you get, get to the first harvest, you, you get a year or two under your belt in this position. What are some things you're looking ahead to in the, in the future that you either haven't tried yet or, or want to tweak a little bit? I'd like to work with more Pinot Noir from different AVAs. So, I mean, we've really been primarily focused on um, the Dundee Hills, obviously. Um, we have one site in the old Amity Hills, but we, that's mostly been used for a sparkling base. Um, and then we purchased Kalita Vineyard in 2021 in the Yamhill Carlton District. And that fruit is so different. And I didn't really realize until I was working with the fruit from the ground up, how how radically different that AVA was. And so I am now more excited to, to look at other vineyard sites, you know, purchase fruit from other vineyard sites, um, other AVAs, and really have that portfolio going in our tasting room. So that would be what I would look forward to in the next few years. Um, we're be bringing a Pinot Blanc program on board. Um, so working with that variety uh, a little bit more. And then also our Chardonnay program is really in its infancy. And especially Chardonnay from our estate vineyards. Um, we planted some um, 
in uh, 2019. So that's really starting to come on board. It's been a past couple years have been kind of rough on Chardonnay. Um, so that should be in pretty full production this year. And then we grafted some Pinot Gris vines over in our Eola Amity site to Chardonnay. So that'll be interesting to work with two AVAs with Chardonnay. Um, so I think that will be a program that I can, can make a big impact on is our Chardonnay. And of course it's Chardonnay from the Willamette Valley has been in the news a lot. So, I mean, you go outside of Oregon and it's still little known about it, even though it's been in the media. Um, so there's a lot of growth and potential in that program. So kind of zooming out a little bit and talking about the industry, tell me about how you've seen the Oregon wine industry change since you've been a part of it and what the industry looks like now in 2023. I mean, I've been a part of it since 2005 and it has grown so much. Um, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, the number of vineyards and wineries that have come on in that nearly 20 years, but it's, it's massive. Um, but I will say what's stayed consistent is the collegiality of the, of the valley, of the industry in, in general and within Oregon. Um, so I would just say there's been more and more small producers coming on site and then also more, um, more purchasing. Um, Jackson coming in and purchasing several different vineyards um, and wine labels which I think has been to our benefit. I mean, they're, they're funding all this research for smoke, um, which, which is to be shared with the industry um, as a whole, you know, California, New Zealand, Australia. But um, that money is important to the development and these smaller facilities, we don't have the money to fund all that research. So it's been a good, it's been a positive change. Um, also kind of sad to see more and more independent wineries um, um, disappear, I guess, to a certain degree. So it's pluses and minuses in that transition. Um, but I do understand why it's happening. I mean, if, you, if your kids don't want to take over the company, I mean, you need a retirement plan. So um, I respect why people are doing it. It's also really, this is a tough business financially. Um, this is really tough. <laughs> I mean, the Sokol Blasters have been doing this for 50 years, so we have a good foundation. But to come in now is that's a, that's a tough road financially. So um, I understand why people are are selling to to larger larger um, operations. Um, so that's been a big change I've seen in my years here. Um, more and more vineyard sites coming in, um, you know, AVAs are being developed, sub-AVAs are being developed. Um, so that's been really interesting to be, to, to see that come into play. I haven't been part of them. Um, and where we're at today is, um, I mean, the sparkling, I think has been the sparkling and the Chardonnay programs coming into the Willamette Valley have been the biggest changes, which I think are really exciting. And I'm excited to put a stamp out there on Willamette Valley 
sparkling. Like I think we can produce some really interesting um, sparklings that the world will enjoy and can compete with uh, champagne. I mean, it's hard to compete with the name champagne, but I feel like in a tasting, we, we have some solid competitors out there. Um, and with a price that's a little more approachable than champagne. So, and I just see this, the, the Oregon wine industry just continuing to develop. I mean, we're putting money into research um, at OSU, with Chemeketa. Um, we're producing more and more um, people who are tied to this state you know, with the Linfield program and Chemeketa and Oregon State really focusing. And so that's fun to see people who are already connected with the state come into the industry. And I think that will help take us into a, uh, continue to take us in a positive direction, people who are tied to home. Um, yeah, and I just, you know, we just finished Oregon Pinot Camp which is very rewarding. It's so fun to see these people come in that know limited information about Oregon. They like Oregon, but, um, and they just, I mean, to run into these campers at the end of the event and they, they just, <laughs> they're just thrilled with their experience and they're gonna take it literally all over the world and, and preach, preach the Oregon wine industry gospel. And that's, you know, exciting. We're, we're getting out there. We're still small. Small, I think we're 1.4% of the worldwide sale of, of wine. So we're, we're really small and we have a lot to say and I think it's just gonna grow from there. For your personal future, anything else you're looking ahead to either uh, professionally or personally that has on your horizon? Well, I think I got a lot going on professionally right now <laughs> in my new role. Um, and then personally, um, uh, my husband and I bought a property uh, a couple years ago and I am not planting a vineyard, but there is a lot of landscaping to be done. So that takes a lot of my time <laughs> and just getting out and traveling more again. Um, there's so many places in the world I need to go. I keep going back to France, but um, there's so many places I need to get out and explore still. Um, so that's probably my next passion is traveling. I feel very rewarded traveling and I feel like I come back with a, uh, you know, even if the trip is unrelated to wine, I always come back with a fresh view on, on wine. Um, it's just nice to step away from every day and see something different and taste different food and um, yeah, so that's that's the next personal journey is getting out and traveling more. And as you look back, what do you feel like is your biggest accomplishment? That's a hard question. Well, people just ask, don't ask you that very often. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think I'm most proud of the fact that I made a life for myself here in Oregon all by myself. I mean, my dad drove me out here. Um, I knew no one. Um, you know, I'm 2,000 miles from everything I know. 
and I made friends. I started a career. Um, I met my husband. I, you know, we bought a house. Um, I'm just, I mean, I was just this shy, shy little girl in Michigan and I came out here all by myself and, and started a life and a career and a successful career. And I think I'm most proud of that, that I, I stepped out of my comfort zone um, and have had failures, but overall successes in my life. Any day now, you'll stop for that real job. Any day now. Someday I'm gonna find I'm gonna find the time to look for that real job. <laughs> uh, final question for you: uh, If someone were to ask you for words of wisdom or advice on joining the Oregon wine industry, what would you tell them? Um, definitely work harvest, even if you want to go into a different department within the industry. Um, I highly recommend working harvest and learning some production because it all ties back to production, be it your sales, marketing, um, accounting. I just think there's something to be learned from, from the foundation of the, the industry, which is producing, um, producing the wine. All right. That's all the questions I have for you. Uh, okay. Anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover today that you'd like to cover? Um, no, we didn't go over my dental records, but I think we covered a lot. <laughs> FBI file. Yeah. We'll get, we'll, get that next time. well, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing with us today, sharing this beautiful space and sharing your stories. We really appreciate it. Yeah. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.